Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor, Sarah Jane and Harry as they try to fix the transmat for Space Station Nerva and get caught up in the Centauran experiment. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteamp at teamproductions.com. But first, as always, I shall give you the story recap. Part 1. In a remote dale, the Doctor lands within a circle of metal orbs. He takes a look around and sees Harry begin to appear beside him, only to disappear and reappear in a different place within the circle. The Doctor starts to look at the orbs, saying that they're receiving notes of the transmat from the space station. Harry reminds him about Sarah Jane, and they hear her calling for help from nearby. The Doctor tells her to go help her, and he finds her entangled in a large patch of gorse. They join the Doctor, who tells him he needs to refocus the refractors, which will take some time, and suggests they go for a walk around. Sarah Jane voices that he is too polite to tell them to go away, and she and Harry then go for a look around. As they leave, the Doctor jokes at them to be careful of traffic as they are in the place that used to be Piccadilly Circus. As they wander around, Sarah Jane says she hears something and spots something moving on a ledge above them, but it moves out of sight before Harry sees it. He tells her she is imagining things and leads her on, but he slips and falls down a steep embankment. Thankfully, he is relatively uninjured, but he says that he can't get back up. Sarah Jane notices that the area around where he fell seems to have been covered almost like a trap. She tells Harry that she will go and get the Doctor. Meanwhile, the Doctor is completely unaware that he's being watched by two armed men wearing spacesuits named Eric and Zake. Eric leaves Zake to watch the Doctor whilst he goes to inform the others of their group. He arrives to find one of them, Kranz, cooking, and he tells him about the Doctor. Kranz says that their other teammate, Viral, is out hunting for food and says that they can't wait for him before going to investigate the Doctor. At that moment, Zake is forced to abandon his position as a strange metal machine on wheels with antenna on top of its block-like torso pursues him. It chases him across the dale, forcing him to plummet from a cliff edge. The Doctor hears his death scream and goes to investigate, but he is captured by Kranz and Eric, who stun him as they think he is responsible for Zake's death. Sarah Jane arrives back at the Circle of Orbs and finds the Doctor's sonic screwdriver and calls out for him. She rushes back to Harry, but finds him missing. While she was gone, an unseen person caused a rock slide into the pit where Harry was, forcing him to crawl to safety through a nearby tunnel. Sarah Jane finds a tree limb nearby and starts to drag it to the edge of the embankment, but while she is doing this, a man appears behind her and covers her mouth to stop her from screaming. He drags her behind a cluster of rocks and they watch as the wheeled machine approaches the embankment. It scans the area, but then moves away, and once the coast is clear, the man asks what Sarah Jane is doing there. He introduces himself as Roth, and he explains that he was the one who set the trap so he could catch the machine, which he says is a servant of an alien that lives in the rocks nearby. He says that the alien has been using the machine to capture his crewmates so he can experiment on them. He says that he managed to escape and shows Sarah Jane his arm, which is covered in scars and burn marks. Sarah Jane asks him to take her to the rocks, thinking that the alien may have taken Harry and the Doctor. He says that one of them is with his crewmates and he takes her to them. En route, he tells Sarah Jane that he saw Viral be released from the alien's base after being captured. At that moment, Viral returns to the camp as Kranz and Eric are questioning the Doctor about Zake's death. He says that he came across the body and says death must have been accidental. He tells them about arriving via transmit from the space station, but they don't believe him, saying that the space station and the colony on board it is a myth. Varel threatens the Doctor to make him tell the truth, and the Doctor notices a strange metal stud on the collar of his spacesuit, which he says doesn't look like human technology. The trio then leave the Doctor and begin to discuss what to do with him. 
Cran says that the doctor's story is so outlandish that it could be true and offers to question him, but Varal says that he will do it. Unbeknownst to them, the doctor's suspicions prove to be true, as the alien has been observing them the whole time and dispatches the machine to their site. Varal and the others go to the doctor, who tells them that the colonists on the space station failed to wake up due to a fault in their revival system. He then asks how they arrived on Earth, and Varal says that they were dispatched to investigate a distress call from one of their freighters. He proudly explains that they are from Galsec, which is a colony that went further into the galaxy after the solar flares ravaged Earth and they established an expansive empire. He says that after they landed to investigate the distress call, their ship was destroyed. The doctor says that he can get them back to their own people, but they refuse to listen. Suddenly, Arak sees Roth run past and they chase after him. When they are gone, Sarah Jane appears and frees the doctor so they can both escape. They link up with Roth at the embankment, and the doctor starts to give out about Harry falling into the pit, but stops when he gets an idea. He says that based on the area that they are in, plus the foundation around the pit, they must be near an old tube line, and that Harry possibly had gone through it. He says he needs to climb down into the pit to check it out, but despite assuring Sarah Jane that he would be careful, he too falls down into the pit. Sarah Jane and Rock go to make sure he's alright, but they are captured by the machine. Meanwhile, Harry exits the tunnel, which leads to a large rocky outcropping. He sees a large spherical orb nestled in between the rocks, and he goes to take a look at it. He then sees Sarah Jane and Roth being dragged to it by the machine, and they watch as the alien emerges, revealing itself to be a Santaran. Part 2 Sarah Jane is shocked by the appearance of the Santaran, as he looks exactly the same as Lynx, the one she encountered in medieval England with the Doctor. The Santaran introduces himself as Field Major Steyer, from the Santaran Military Assessment Survey, and informs her that all Santarans look alike. He then begins to record notes into a dictaphone about Sarah Jane, commenting on her lack of military value. Roth, refusing to be experimented upon again, tries to escape, but he is killed by Steyer using a blaster, and Sarah Jane calls him a murderer. He ignores her recriminations and says that she and the others would be valuable test subjects. Harry sees this and starts to make his way towards the pod, but en route, he comes across another member of Varal's group, chained to the rocks, who weakly begs for help. Harry gives him a piece of damp cloth to suck on to help with his dehydration. He asks what Steyer wants with them, and the man says that he is testing their endurance. Harry then arms himself with a big stick and goes looking for Sarah Jane, taking care to avoid Steyer. He eventually finds her tied to the rocks, but when he tries to release her, they discover that she is trapped behind an invisible force field. Harry then goes to find Steyer so he can find a way to release her. Meanwhile, back at the pit, the doctor tries to climb out of it, but he is captured by Boral and the others. He spots the machine making its way towards them, and he warns them to look out, but they think he is trying to trick them. They then notice its approach and fire their weapons at it to no effect, and they are captured by it, but the doctor manages to escape into the tunnel in the rocks. Steyer returns to his pod and messages his superior and gives his report on what he has learned from the humans. The superior says that they can begin their invasion of Earth, but Steyer requests that he delay it as he has a few more tests that he needs to run. He signs off and then starts an experiment to test Sarah Jane's fear levels. He remotely activates a disc he had earlier placed on her head, and it makes her see a snake wrapped around her arm, but she is able to see past the illusion and see that it is ropes holding her. However, the hallucinations intensify and she sees the rocks overhead start to fall towards her, as well as the mud beneath her beginning to swallow her. Suddenly the doctor appears and tells her to fight the hallucinations, whilst he uses his sonic screwdriver to disable the force field generator which is embedded in the rock. Sarah Jane faints from the ordeal and the doctor removes the disc from her head. Steyer appears and mocks the Doctor, who angrily charges at the Santaran, but is easily beaten to the ground. The Doctor then distracts Steyer and attempts to escape, but Steyer manages to shoot him with his blaster. Steyer then returns to his pod as the machine has brought Varal and the others to the pod. 
He reveals that Morrell agreed to help him in exchange for his own safety, but then reneges on the deal. Meanwhile, Harry goes back to Sarah Jane and finds her and the Doctor unconscious. He then goes back to the chained man and sees that he has died, but he is forced to take cover when Styra arrives. The Suntaran begins to record the findings of his experiments on the man. Harry starts to creep up on him to hit him with his stick, but he is stopped by the Doctor, who quietly brings him back to cover. He reveals that the blast from Styra's gun hit a bit of the transport ship from the space station that he had pilfered. He then wonders why Styra is doing experiments, telling Harry that Suntarans never do anything without a militaristic reason. He tells Harry to go back to tend to Sarah Jane whilst he goes to find out more about the Styre's motives. At that moment, Styre is conducting an experiment to determine the human body's resistance to weight. He chains Varal to a flat rock and forces Eric and Kranz to hold an electronically controlled gravity bar over him. He then gradually increases the weight of the bar and the duo struggle to keep it from crushing their treacherous companion. At the pod, the Doctor encounters the machine but disables it with his sonic screwdriver. He then takes cover as Styre returns to the pod as he was alerted to an incoming message from his superior. He overhears the discussion and listens and the superior frustratedly tells Styre to finish his experiments so they can launch their invasion. The Doctor then moves away and he is joined by Harry and a newly awakened Sarah Jane. He informs them of what he overheard and says he intends to challenge Styre to single combat to distract him from finishing his experiments. He tells him he wants to go to the pod and gives them instructions on what to do, giving Harry his sonic screwdriver as he does so. He then goes to find Steyer, who has resumed the experiment on the prisoners, and he challenges them. He tells Steyer that the others are members of the servitor class of Earth, and that he is a proper representative of the warrior society. Steyer prepares to shoot him, but the doctor calls him a coward, and Steyer then picks up one of the prisoners' knives he had taken from them. The two begin to fight, and the doctor leads him up into the rocky outcropping, allowing Sarah Jane and Harry to rescue the prisoners. Harry then goes to the pod to carry out the plan. The Doctor ambushes the weakening Sontaran, but he is still too strong for the Doctor. Varal arrives to help, but Styre kills him with a vicious punch, and Styre beats the Doctor to the ground before retreating to his pod to re-energize. Harry returns with the device that he was told to take from the pod. The Doctor tells him and Sarah Jane that they need to get away. They watch as Styre staggers from the pod, clutching the probic vent at the base of his neck. He falls to the ground and his body begins to break down as the pod explodes. The Doctor explains that the device Harry took was part of the machine that Sontarans used to re-energize, but by taking it, the machine fed off Steyr instead. He then goes to the intact transmitter and contacts Steyr's superior, and informs him that without Steyr's report, the invasion can't proceed. The frustrated superior vows to take revenge on Earth before signing off. The Doctor and Harry and Sarah Jane are escorted back to the transmit area by Eric and Kranz, who say they will wait for the crew from the space station to arrive. The Doctor and his companions then fade from sight. End of the story. So, uh, as always, we will now go on to the trivia spot. But firstly, I would like to thank uh, Norm for supporting our stance on bubble wrap used in the Harkin space. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Norm. Absolutely. It was very good use of that prop. Bubble wrap for the motherfucking ring. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you got for us this week? Cool. So the air date for the Suntaran experiment, well, this was the air dates for the two episodes, Mm. were the 22nd of February and the 1st of March, 1975. The writers for the story are Bob Baker and Dave Martin. This is the fourth story they've done together. We previously saw their work in The Claws of Axos, The Mutants, and The Three Doctors. We'll see their work together again in The Hand of Fear, The Invisible Enemy, Underworld, and The Armageddon Factor. And as mentioned in previous stories, Bob Baker will have a standalone episode in Nightmare of Eden. 
The director for the story is Rodney Bennett. This is the second of three stories for Rodney. His, his first being last week's The Ark in Space. We'll see his work one final time in The Mask of Mandragora. He's off to a good start anyway, not that much. <laughs> <laughs> the working title for the story was The Destructors, which is certainly a lot better in terms of keeping the villain a secret. Yeah. But however, although this is the third story of the season... It was actually the second story of season 12 that was shot. Robert was shot at the end of season 11. This is the first they shot on the production block for season 12. Hmm. They filmed on location in Dartmoor. And the reason why we have the Doctor and Harry and Sarah Jane getting like big coats on and wellies and everything at the end of last week's story is because when they arrived at Dartmoor, it was pissing rain. Yeah. And they were basically told to go to a shop and buy a coat. Mm. So Ian and Tom bought men's long coats. And Elizabeth Sladen bought bright yellow, basically, you know, rain gear with orange wellies. Mm. That apparently she still had, possibly up until the time she passed away, she still had them like in the 2000s. Anyway. Uh, I was the inspiration for one of your Halloween costumes. Yes, she was. If she yeah. was. This this story was shot entirely on location in Dartmoor, and all the scenes were actually recorded on videotape rather than on film. This is only the second serial in the Doctor Who history to be shot entirely on location. Spearhead in Space was also a location shoot. And Spearhead was filmed on film, whereas for this, like I said, they did videotape, and they used an outside broadcast unit in order to do that. At only two episodes long, this is the shortest story of the 1970s and the shortest story overall since The Rescue, which also had two episodes. So Bob Holmes wasn't a big fan of six-part stories. I think me and Bob would get along very well for the most part. Um, Mm -hmm. He believed they were too padded and so for season 12, he decided to have one of the six-parters broken up into a four and a two. The Arcade Space was already in the works and so he had... Bob Baker and Dave Martin take this two-parter in order to fill the gap. As an outline, he said it had to be set on Earth and it had to bring back the Sontarans. He obviously wanted to capitalise on the fact that they had costumes and a very expensive ship that they made for Time Warrior that they had not used again. Mm. This is one of only 11 stories in the history of Doctor Who not to feature the TARDIS at all. I mentioned the title. Bob Baker and Dave Martin didn't particularly care for the title. Because they thought it spoiled the identity of the villain. Which it does. I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of when titles spoil the surprise of the villain. Yeah. Uh, a huge key example I always use is uh, in the Revival era. The mm. fucking first appearance of the Daleks is called Dalek. And I, can, can you imagine how good a surprise it would have been if it had just fucking appeared in the episode that was called, I don't know, like the return or something like that. Yeah. I think the difference as well with the classic era is that like you can, you know, if you're maybe concerned that ratings might be a bit lower and you want to bump the ratings. Yeah. The ratings are lower for the first episode until everyone knows what the villain is. Yeah, exactly. Then hype builds into the second episode. The the only, I think the only time I actually off the top of my head, right. I think the only time that I actually liked when a episode referenced the, the actual villains is next week's story, Genesis of the Daleks, because it's yeah. the Genesis story. Yeah, which I think is fine. Do you know, yeah. I, think, I think in that in that case it kind of works. But things like Invasion of the Dinosaurs, mm. you 
know, yeah. uh, something something of the Cyberman. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dark side something something. Fierce. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of the Suntarans, uh, Robert Holmes gave a bit a bit of a briefing to Bob Baker and Dave Martin. I say a bit of a briefing. It was three hours long on Suntaran culture, including their sex lives. The two lads didn't care. He's a squat, froggy-looking thing. That—that That's really all they cared about. And, like, that's why I would get on great with Bob Holmes, because if he's going to give me a three-hour lecture on like the fucking culture of a uh, alien species, I'm all there for it. Yeah, one thing, like in terms of Suntaran culture, that we just sort of take for granted in the revival era, and I need to double-check. I need to go back and take a look at some frames from Time War. Steyer has five fingers, not three. On each hand, obviously. Does he? He is. Well, he has more than fucking three, I can tell you that much. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, keep going. I'm, I'm yes. just looking there. Go fact check me, thank you very much. Yeah, actually, yeah, when he's taken off the helmet, his right hand has five fingers. Mm-hmm. And because of the camera angle of on his left hand, you're going. I'm going to assume it's the same. Yeah, you only ever see his right hand fully. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he has five fingers, not three. So there's mention. You mentioned it in your summary that like, oh, this is this is Piccadilly or whatever. Baker and Martin wanted to incorporate some relics from human civilization, kind of in a sort of ode to Planet of the Apes, mm. in a way. Maybe having the top of Nelson's column poking through, or something like that. And much of the action in their scripts was set in the ruins of an old priory. And so Steyer was actually using medieval torture devices on Ooh, the humans. That, that would have been cool. That, that would have been, cool. been cool. So a lot of this would have appeared in the second episode, which actually Bob Holmes rewrote extensively. He also removed a subplot in which Verl was revealed to have been a victim of mind control, hmm. as opposed to doing it on purpose. Yeah. That's interesting. Um. Yeah, so I mentioned a while ago that like one of the reasons why Bob wanted to bring back the Suntarans is because they had all this shit <laughs> related <laughs> to Suntarans, including the costume. Unfortunately for Bob, I suppose, they ended up creating a new costume for Kevin this time around. They didn't use the old costume. So the old costume, the head was a bit narrower yeah, and like pointier, whereas here it's a bit more of the wider sort of spud yeah this one has more of a kind of um an earthy potato as opposed to a overbaked potato look yes this is another story where we see a lot of stunt acting and terry walsh popping up again hello terry one of the main reasons for this is that during filming tom baker slipped and broke his collarbone i was do you know when because i'm trying to find the scene well, they don't film them in order, so it's kind of hard to identify. Yeah. But any scene where you see the doctor with his scarf sort of wrapped around his arm, mm-hmm. that is post-breakage because yeah. the scarf was used to hide the neck brace and the sling. So that's why that was there. So it was actually terrifying. Like This was their first story after the production block break. Mm. And Philip Hinchcliffe was petrified that he was going to lose his main character yeah um roger murray leach who's one of the designers he took tom to the nearest hospital and obviously philip Hinchcliffe was incredibly relieved when tom returned from the hospital pretty much 
later that day and he was able to continue filming. However, he couldn't do the fight scenes. Yeah. So Terry Walsh did end up doubling for Tom in several shots. And again, there's one or two where you can kind of see Terry's face. But he does a very good job of like, oh no, and covering his face with his hand yeah. <laughs> like as much as he possibly can. So the astronauts that we meet, so the gentlemen from Galsec, they're mostly paid by South African actors who use their native accents. I was going to ask, is this like actual South African actors or some weird yes. choice? No, most of them were South African actors and it was actually a very intentional choice. Hmm. Bob Baker and Dave Martin were very interested in how language evolves with cultural cross-pollination and they believe that the cultural and racial mix of South Africa will be indicative of how a future language might actually sound. Oh, that's interesting. So all of the very specific sort of South African nuances to the accent and a couple of like the, you know, check, check type things. That was all them sort of imagining how would cross-pollination of cultures evolve language over time. And it also kind of lends a little bit of um, insight into last week's story next production block of the Ark in Space around the idea of regressives yeah. and stuff like that. Like the people who, you know, colony speak, which is yeah. much more of a multicultural yeah. speak. It kind of gives a bit more light to that as well. One of the astronauts was played by Glenn Jones. Uh, he played Kranz. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually wrote one, one of our, <laughs> I wouldn't say our least favorite, well, not one of our favorite stories. He wrote the Space Museum for ah. the first time making him one of only five individuals to have both written for and acted in Doctor Who. Lastly, just because I have it to hand, just in case it came up in conversation, uh, the target novelization for the story is written by Ian Martyr. Cool. I was actually going to, I was actually wondering, would there be a target novelization? There was. And do you know what? It is the exact same thickness as all of the other novelizations, even though it is only two episodes. So uh, it's been a long time since I have read it. Because, again, this has, like, a, a sticker for a pound on it, which means I got it, like, 12 years ago. But, yeah, so Ian wrote the story. So, on to the cast. Mm. So, as Roth, we have Peter Rutherford. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Peter. His John Who credits include Churchill's People, The Famous Five, The Professionals, Only Fools and Horses, Mac the Knife, and Highlander. He passed away in 1995. Do you know if that's series or movie? I don't remember. I didn't pay massive attention, and Norm's going to kill me for not checking. I, I, um. I, I, I'll take a look. I'll take a look. Because I'm going like, yo, who the hell is he? It, like, unless he's like a really, really small part. I, I think he's just a bit part, to be honest. I don't think he's anything major in it. Um, for what I understand, most of his acting credits were kind of smaller parts. Uh, it's the it's the series. It was 94, uh, so... That's definitely the series because, yeah. Uh, Verl is played by Donald Douglas. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Donald. His non-Who credits include the Bridget Jones Diaries series. So he was in three, there's three films in that series, I believe. There is. He was in all three of them. Uh, He was in The Crown, Monarch of the Glen, The Infinite Worlds of H.G. Wells, Highlander Endgame, which I'm assuming is a film. Uh, Norm's going to hate me that I don't know what this is. He's not a big Highlander person. Uh, Highlander Endgame is one of the TV. It's so you had the Highlander film series with Christopher Lambert, then you had yes. the TV series, and then they mm-hmm. started making movies that combined the two continuities. Endgame, okay. I believe, was the first of them. I think okay. it's the last. I think it's the last one to feature Christopher Lambert. 
Cook, who was in that. And he was also in Young Sherlock, The Mystery of the Manor House. And lastly, as Steyer and also as the Marshal, we have Kevin Lindsay. This is Kevin's last Doctor Who appearance. We previously saw him in The Time Warrior and Planet of the Spiders. Kevin passed away not long after the story aired in 1975 as a result of a long-standing heart condition. That's a shame. Now, not to make light of that, but there is a bit of a funny story about his work on this story in particular that kind of ties in a little bit to his heart condition. So, as I mentioned, it was raining up in Dartmoor, mm. their own location. Also, as you can imagine, like they didn't exactly drive up onto the moors, yeah. <laughs> you know. The vans were a little bit far away. So whenever they had to take a break for lunch or tea, Kevin just kind of stayed there in full costume. And someone would run up with his lunch. But they also didn't obviously close Dartmoor. Mm. So you'd have people out walking their dogs. <laughs> See Kevin sat there in full suntaring get up. Just eating his lunch off a tray. <laughs> Which I just find brilliant. <laughs> um, also, I think it was on this story. It may have been on the last one. I think it was on this one. Um, the director was like, oh, no, I think it's pronounced Santarin. Instead of Santarin. Yeah. Apparently Kevin's response was, well, I'm the only one who's ever fucking played one. <laughs> I say it's pronounced Santarin. <laughs> oh, no, it was, well, I come from the bloody place. Yeah. And I say it's pronounced Santarin. So, um, while it's sad that this was Kevin's last story, yeah. uh, apparently there was some, it was a really good time, even with um, his condition um, impacting things a little bit. That's That's nice to hear. Yeah. Thank you for all you have contributed to the wonderful world of Doctor Who. Thank you, as always, for the lovely, lovely trivia. You're so very, very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> lovely, lovely trivia. Um, so now we're going to do what we always do and argue about whether this is the second half, the third half, the middle. <laughs> I then we're going to make a decision and we're going to talk about the Doctor, the mm-hmm. companions of Sarah Jane and Harry, the prominent characters of Roth and Verl, and finally the villain of Steyer. And mm-hmm. then we're going to bleed into our overall and give it a score out of five. So... So, as always, first and foremost is the Doctor. So, I think I went first last week. So, how would you go first this week? I mean. Yeah. I initially was a bit concerned mm. that we were going to see a Doctor who doesn't care about his companions in the story. Because he didn't seem overly concerned with the fact that Harry and Sarah didn't appear with him. And even yeah. when Harry did appear, he just sort of got to work and didn't really, like, he didn't ask where Sarah was mm. and stuff like that. And like when she does appear, he's just like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Please fuck off because I've got work to yeah. do. Um, but we do see later in the story just how concerned he is for them and how much he does care very deeply for them, mm. um, which is nice to see. You know, I don't like a doctor who doesn't care for his companions. So that had me initially very concerned, but I like the way it develops overall. The Doctor here is kind of like, there's two sort of primary functions. There is the Science Doctor, obviously, at the very beginning, fixing the uh, spheres and also at the end with the ship. We do also get the line, and this is sort of probably where like the Doctor's like, massive obsession with his science driver comes from. Like, he feels lost without it. And Sarah's like, mm. I have it, you idiot. Come on. 
But then we do also get to see that this doctor can fight when he has to. Hmm. Um, and that he is perfectly willing to go toe-to-toe with a Sontaran when the Sontaran has a sword and he has a stick. Yep. Which is great. Uh, it's a short story, so I think a lot of our character discussion is going to be quite short for each of our characters. But I think for Tom, I think it was a good one. There was nothing outstanding, I believe. But I think it was a good story. I think the way he acted off of uh, the South African cast was great. Hmm. And overall, I think it was just a, a good performance. Nothing massive for me, but a good performance overall. How about you? So it's actually interesting that you uh, mentioned that there was a bit of a Planet of the Apes intention with some of the, the setup hmm. or the initial thing. Because the scene where he charges at Styre after mm-hmm. seeing Sarah Jane, it's very reminiscent of um, Cast Your Mind Back If You Can to the original Planet of the Apes when uh, Taylor sees uh, Langdon, but they've lobotomized him. Yeah. And it's like you cut his brain, brain out, you bloody baboon, you know, the way he charges. Mm-hmm. That felt very similar to Tom charging at Steyer when mm-hmm. he, you know, just the rage, the unbridled fury mm-hmm. of seeing his friend injured. So... Uh, I, I really like that sequence. Mm. I love seeing him interacting with the, the Galsec lads because it was very Columbo-esque in the mm-hmm. way it's like, you think they just release him just so they'd stop fucking annoying him. <laughs> <laughs> um, mentioning the fighting though, mm. so like we have an even young, like, well not an even younger, but we have a younger incarnation of the Doctor here mm. again. So, but, and he is capable of fighting. But he's not as aggressive in the fighting as John was. Like no. there's no Vene- there's no Venetian. It's I think now whether it's I don't it more likely is the memory of like the last time he tussled with Lynx. Mm. It's like, okay, I can't best him physically, however I can taunt the shit out of him. So it's very ta- Yeah, I mean the purpose was to wear him down. It wasn't to wear beat him. him. That was never the purpose. But like uh, you know, it's you could say like that John might have like tried to do this like his normal Venusian Aikido with the same mindset, which is like to like tire him out but be a bit more aggressive with it. But no, I, I liked that um component that it was very tactical fighting. And I love that he holds up the invasion by pointing out that their their own rigid code of bureaucracy. Mm. Uh, it's like you know, well, like without his report about how powerful humans are, you can't launch your invasion now, can you? It actually reminds me of um, I can't remember the episode, but Picard holds up like this alien species by saying that he needs a third party arbiter, but he requests one specific race that are in the middle of like a six month hibernation cycle, and it's like what fucking episode was that? I. The aliens that I can't remember the name of the episode, but the aliens that he's speaking to on screen are like these weird disco like fucking squid things. And he's like, um, you know, I require third party arbitration. And he says, like, we need, I, I said, I requested the Grizellas who are like their six month hibernation cycle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once they wake up, we can get this entire thing sorted out. <laughs> but it's like, uh, using bureaucracy that people are beholden to to hold to, to actually counter them, mm. I I really enjoyed that. So no, I, I agree. This was a good showing from the doctor. Very much so. Now we have our companions. So we have Sarah Jane and Harry. Mm-hmm. Who would you like to discuss first? 
Um, we'll go with Sarah Jane this time around because, like, like last week was Harry's story, mm. so now we're kind of back into the the, the flow of things. No, despite what we always try to say, like there there can be a primary and a secondary companion. Yes, and I would say that for the most part, Sarah Jane is the primary companion. Yes, yes. Sarah Jane is the carryover companion, and we know yeah. that she's the companion that stays on longer. Yeah, I I liked her. I liked her strength of character again in the sense, you know, she tries to resist the hallucinations because mm. she sees past the first one, yeah. but then he intensifies them and she, she just gets overwhelmed by it. So I, mm. I like seeing her trying to fight back in her own way. Yeah. Um, I liked her pairing with Roth. It reminded me of like her pairing with Alpha Centauri mm. in Monster of Pelodon because uh, like, he is... We'll, we'll, we'll talk about him in a while, but he has certain characteristics that kind of remind me of Alpha Centauri mm. in this one. Um, I was, like, but again, like she just, it's Liz being Sarah Jane is just like having fun. Like when she walk, wanders up to the doctor after Harry finds her and helps her, she tries to get his attention by pulling her hat down over her face just to see if he'll get anything out of him. Uh, so it's just like that sort of, it's interesting to see that as the stories go on, she stops acting like the straight laced professional we first meet and more like a more childlike or more Yeah, this is gonna be an interesting when we get to the end of Liz's run Liz's primary run on the show. Yeah. I think we start to see bits of it in this story. Um up until now she has still been, she's still been fairly straight laced. Um, but we start to yeah. see bits of it in this story, and we'll see more of it going forward. That Sarah Jane's development is, in some ways, it's the inverse of Joe's. Yeah, no, I I can see that. And particularly next season, and the two episodes of the season after that she's in that becomes very very prominent. But that's really all my thoughts. I had like again, we're only two episodes, mm. um, and. Yeah, no, that's a thought for the overall. Sorry. <laughs> that's a thought for the overall. Cool. Yeah, so that's my thoughts on Sarah Jane. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, Sarah Jane is kind of forgotten at the beginning, like I mentioned, but we can see very quickly and very clearly how much the other two do care for her, and they care for her throughout the story, and also she cares very dearly for them. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that I love about Sarah Jane, the character, is that she rescues other people as often as they rescue her. Yeah. Which is great. We also get to see Sarah's compassion in the way she is with Roth. Like she's clearly sort of challenging him and, you know, badgering him with questions and trying to get answers. But she also is very compassionate to him and understanding of the fact that he's been through something terrible. Do you know? Yeah. One of my favorite parts of Sarah in this story is her like the cliffhanger at the end of episode one. Her reaction to seeing Steyer. The fact that she calls him Lynx. If you're a fan of the Russell T. Davis era of the show, it's very reminiscent of Journey's End when she sees Davros. This idea of her recognizing a past foe that she has faced. As cool as that sequence is, the sequence before it, that's Mm. fucking excellent. (laughs) That's just, oh. But this is very reminiscent of that. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Or rather, it's premonescent of it. (laughs) <laughs> whatever the inverse of reminiscence yes. is I, 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 my English isn't that good yeah, even though she says like oh but you're identical and like we've already established they clearly weren't identical because they made a different costume 
Um, I think it's a fantastic reaction because it also highlights the fact like Sarah has seen a lot of shit mm-hmm. at this point in the game. Do you know? I think the way she did the fears, like you said, was brilliant. The fact that you see her trying to overcome them and combat them. Um, and you feel bad for her. Like you generally feel for her in that moment. Do you know? And I do love the way, like when she, you know, when she passes out after the doctor takes off the little neural thing off her head. I love how sensitive he is with her. Mm. Do you know? It's very, very sweet. And you, you can see that like, well, yeah, he seemed to not give a rat's ass where she was at the beginning of the story. Fairly confident that she'll be fine. He does genuinely care for her. Do you yes. know? And the fact that she kept his sonic screwdriver just in her pocket, you know, mm. she knows what things are important to him. So I, I do love their relationship here, even though they're separate for a lot of it. Yeah. It's very, very sweet. And then we have Mr. Sullivan, or rather Surgeon Lieutenant Sullivan. Mm-hmm. A two-for-one special in terms of the fury of a doctor in this story. Very yeah. much so. Very much so. Harry is fucking brilliant in this story. Like, he really he, is. He, oh, like, you think when he falls into the pit, it's like oh, the fucking clod, you know? that like That type of shit. But it's like... His ingenuity, first of all, right? You know, like, you know he's exploring he tries to get out that that thing is great his compassion with the the prisoner mm. um i i actually love that and it it kind of reminds me of something funny that happened in my mom's pharmacy but the guy asks for water and harry being obviously a doctor doesn't give him water gives him a damp cloth so that it's mm. measured it it helps part of the uh, deal with the dehydration so that's really good i that's an intelligent thing. Again, we're seeing his medical skills coming into effect, yeah. I think. Um, but also his bravery in the sense of like he's he has no idea what Steyer is capable of, but he picks up a fucking stick and he's ready to clatter the shit out of him, or at least try and clatter the shit out of him. Mm. And we have no idea what level of military training Harry has, you know, mm. in terms of like combat skills or anything like that. But what we're seeing here is the good man that Harry is. Yeah, very much so. I think of the three stories so far, this may seem quite weird since there's only two episodes and Harry is on his own for most of it. Yep. I think this is actually one of my favourite Harry performances. Yeah. And he's only really, really present in the second episode. Yeah, I mean, like, Harry falls down a hole fairly early on in episode one. Yeah. And he doesn't really get back together with everyone else until midway through episode two. Um, so there's about the equivalent of an episode where it's Harry pottering around by himself. I say yeah. pottering, he's exploring by himself. He's trying to find Sarah or whatever. And like, yeah. you know, I mentioned the fact that like, you know, the doctor clearly cares very much. Surgeon. Harry does as well. Like, yeah. you, you can see that like, this isn't Harry. Like, you know, he does the whole old girl thing. Like when, when she comes up, you know, when he picks her up off the ground and then, you know, when she sort of expresses pain, he's like, oh, are you okay? It's a very genuine question. Of course, she's like, oh, you know, just my dignity, you know. He calls her, he calls her old thing. Yeah. That's what I she because I'm not, I'm not a Harry. thing, Harry. But you can see throughout the story, he said his compassion running through and like when he can't get into her, in the he just keeps mm. battering at us, trying yeah. to find a way in. And he's like, well, you know, I'll just go find the centaur and bait the shit out of him and take his keys. Mm. Fuck yeah. it. <laughs> like, what I, think we see here is that like there is more to harry than the mild-mannered klutz Mm. this is lieutenant sullivan Mm. 
Do you know? And we've mentioned before that, like, what is the difference between Harry, who's an older gentleman, you know, he has rank, he's a trained medical officer, versus Ben, who was a younger man and just a sailor. I think this is where we see it. Mm-hmm. I think Harry would have beaten the ever-living shit out of Star and would have killed him with, not with no remorse, but he wouldn't have been as shocked by it as Ben was. I think the Hippocratic Oath would probably take a fucking backseat yes. uh, in this particular in this yeah. instance. And that's the thing with Harry, because of his age and his experience, he knows when to balance the two. Mm. Um, when is strength required versus when is medicine required? Unfortunately, this is a story that also sadly highlights how redundant Harry is in some ways. Because while he is willing to go toe-to-toe with Steyer, Tom Baker is a younger man as in younger than John Pertwee and certainly younger than um, Hartnell ever was Yeah, and so for this story Tom is the one who does the fighting or rather the doctor is the one that does the fighting whereas if the first or second doctor were there it would have been Harry that was doing it And this story kind of highlights how the reason they brought Harry on board was because they didn't know who was going to play the doctor Mm. and how how much he'd be willing to do or able to do physically. And this story kind of highlights how Harry's not needed for that. The doctor's fine on that side. Mm. Um, Which is unfortunate because it's one of my favourite stories of Harry's, but it's also the one that kind of highlights how for the original reason they brought him on board, and I don't mean that Harry's redundant overall, I don't want anyone to think that's what I mean, but for the original reason they brought him on board to be the muscle, Mm -hmm. he's not needed in that role. He needs to serve a different purpose. No. And like, like of the three stories, I think we've actually seen, We've seen actually a nice bit of Harry all around in this. Mm. But yeah, this one, it's like where he's meant to be the muscle. It's proven that he does need to be the muscle. But the fact that he's capable of being it mm. and capable of holding our interest by himself. Like, it's amazing to think that just after the strength of one episode, we're already saying that this is his best performance. <laughs> like, Yeah, I mean, like, it was a really good story. And yeah. we get to see, because we get to see all the different sides of Harry in two episodes. You know, we have the Harry being like, oh, talks to well, that was rigid of us, come here going. Um, we get to see him sort of playing things up with Sarah. We get to see him sort of being a little bit cl- clumsy, or at least he thinks clumsy. Um, we get to see the medicine and we get to see the fact that, you know, he's not he's not a wimp. Like he's perfectly willing and able to get stuck in where required, um, which is great to see in two episodes, like, you know, less than 50 minutes <laughs> or around 50 yeah. minutes of television and we've actually spent probably spent more time talking about him than sarah jane and the doctor combined probably yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh good old harry yeah so now we have prominent characters of rot and Viral. yeah so you asked me when we were doing our character list you know should we include the humans all in one go or whatever and well kranz and the other guy are they're in the story. I think Roth and Verl are probably the two most yeah. prominent from the human group and probably the two that are the most distinctive. Yeah, like that was the thing I was like I feel like I don't I don't want to just lump everyone in together. Hmm. But like 
the other two lads they share I think almost as much screen time as Varal like Rot I think has the most screen time out of all of them mm, no I, I think they actually all have roughly I think actually Roth has the least overall because he dies at the start of episode 2 oh, yeah that's true but like Roth and Varal are obviously the two sides they're, of the coin do you know they're the, two fleshed out, they're the only two really fleshed out characters yeah so why don't we talk about poor Rotty first poor Rotty um, for only like be appearing in two parts, he really has an impact on you. He, I, mm. I think he really does. Like his pairing with Sarah Jane is really good because it's it's like a cross between Bilal from yeah. City uh, Death of the Daleks and Alpha Centauri. Mm. Like her, like his childlike mannerisms when he's like yeah 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 the alien and he's trying to mimic <laughs> what, what it looks like. That kind of reminds me a bit like Bilal, but also his nervous disposition is very reminiscent of Alpha Centauri I thought I think on the subject of his death when like her reaction to his death I think the as an audience member watching it mm. you actually feel the impact of his death by her yes very like, much so yeah it, it feels compared to other characters that we have seen die in a sort of supporting characters that we've seen die this is a death that sold very well i think yeah like i feel bad like like in the sense of there okay he doesn't think he can trust Varal, mm. and he's he meets sarah who says and she try and and the doctor as well mm. and he sees people that could help potentially save him but when he is brought back to Steyr, his he can't see any he, his terror at being re-experimented upon us again is so great he can't see any other potentially way out and death is actually a release for him. Yeah, like Roth is one of those characters where it's a completely understandable that he doesn't trust anyone, even his own crewmates, because he knows Varal has been to the rocks. Yeah. And he knows what happens at the rocks, and that's not what happened to Varel. So, what the fuck yeah. is going on? So, like, he doesn't even trust his own teammates. And one of the things I love about his dynamic with Sarah is that he starts to trust her. Mm-hmm. And he continually pushes himself, even when he reaches a point where he, think he can, where he thinks he can't go any further. So, when he brings her up by the rocks, and, you know, she's like, okay, well, we have to go up there. And he's like, no, 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 we can't, we can't, we can't. And, like, he's clearly terrified. But because she's going, he'll go with her. Because yeah. he has to support her and he has to defend her and he, you know, she's his friend or whatever. Um, and I love that we get to see that even only in like one episode. Because isn't he st- he dies within the first like two minutes of episode two. <laughs> he, he dies more or less straight after the reprise. Yeah, so I think in that way, I think he's a fantastic character. I think pairing him with Sarah is a really good choice for that because, again, mm-hmm. her compassion and the way she is with people, she naturally draws him out. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think we feel his death probably most prominently because Sarah does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had other characters, you know, supporting characters die in the past who've had just as much screen time as Roth, if not more, and you mm-hmm. don't feel their death as much because the characters that we relate to the doctor harry sarah so on they don't react to their deaths as much so for example if we think back to last week in the ark in space libri and the other fellow whose name i've forgotten 
or uh, Lysus. Libri and Lysus, they both died last week. Mm. Now, we didn't see Lysus' death on screen, but we also didn't feel the same way, I think. But but not even them. Like if, I'd even go so far as to say Rogan. Like, yeah. I, I think Roth's death is a lot more impactful than Rogan because of the fact, like, Sarah Jane, does, Sarah Jane sees it happen. So yeah. we witness it through her. Whereas the doctor comes back and he tells everyone that Rogan has died. Yeah, I think there's something about seeing it through the eyes of our companions yeah. um, that makes it that much more visceral. And like yeah. I said, like, you know, Roth went to so much, like, you know, he pushed himself so much and he gets shot for the effort. Yeah. Like, or even if we want to go back to another discussion we had, uh, another two-part story that we had discussion, the the rescue. Yeah. Uh, Vicky lamenting the loss of Sandy, the the, the croc dog, mm. and like you do feel bad for the death of this fucking animal, you know. Well, yeah, but that, <laughs> like, well, okay, fine, yeah, yeah, yeah heartless fucking. <laughs> but like, that was Barbara did nothing thing. wrong. <laughs> yeah, like that was a that was a completely different argument because it was it wasn't a villain fucking shooting so, you know someone. It was a no. misunderstanding of scenarios. Like, but at least you could you could still feel exactly, that exactly. creature died. Yeah, but anyway, heartless. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts on Roth? No, I just think that like it's it's so sad. Like he is such a sad character. Yeah, who still had something to give in the relationship that he had with Sarah Jane, which is, I think is very, very, very sweet. And it's what makes his death all, all the worse. Then we have the other side of the coin, mm-hmm. who is Viral, who is a bit of a dick. Viral, I th- this is another story where I would like to read the novelization because we have no idea to what extent Viral was experimented upon or tortured. Is it like... Was he was he broken? Uh, like did did he betray the group out of cowardice? Uh, did he do it for some fucking angry reason towards them? Because, and the reason I like I say about anger is when he's talking to the doctor about the the people on the ark, like he grabs him by the collar and he like starts like we don't need to listen to you fucking people like we went off and we established our own thing like we're incredibly powerful and all this type of stuff so like i'm wondering like was his whatever is going through his head because of his allegiance to steyer is that bleeding through some of his interactions with the doctor like again it's it's just it's very hard to know you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm thumbing through the book trying to find it. I don't know where it would be mentioned specifically. Oh, like um, that, that, I can imagine that would be like a recurring thing throughout the entire... Yeah, but in terms of like, you know, why he paired up with... And this is the thing where the original script had him being less of a dick because he was mind-controlled. Mind-controlled, yeah. And we know that the Sontarans have mind-control powers because they've used it before. Mm-hmm. By not having a mind, I mean the one thing we find out is that Roth wasn't, or that Viral wasn't gone very long, so he encountered Steyer and was back to the group very quickly. Yeah, and he's been basically giving up everyone else ever since. Mm. So was Viral tortured? Maybe, but certainly not to the extent any of the others were. But but that's what I'm saying. Was it was it cowardice? Like because. It could be a sense of like Styr was about to start working on him, but in order to save his own skin, he agreed to you know bring in other guinea pigs. 
because mm. I, I because I don't get the impre- impression that he was broken through mm. experimentation or torture. No. I th- I I think it's I I think it's cowardice more so than anything. Yeah, he either made or accepted a deal very quickly. I would I would say I would say he offered. I I get I get the impression that he offered and Steyer took him up on it. Yeah, I, I found the bit in the book. Right. Okay. Uh, so this is where uh, they've been captured and um, Styre is basically he's going to experiment on all of you. Um, mm. And we have Vero saying, but I helped you, Vero whimpered. I did everything you wanted. You failed to produce the unknown stranger from the circle. Styre asked. You lost him. Verl tried to shuffle forward on his knees as if to attack the towering figure of the Santaran with the help with his helpful with his helplessly pinioned arms, Sir thrust him back with a contemptuous kick. You promised, you promised to spare me, Verl went on. Uh, a simple te- Oh no! Okay. So Styre's squat features squeezed into a gassy, ironic smile. A simple test of human gullibility. Why should you be spared a traitor to your own miserable species? So yeah, so I think it was actually he was probably one of the first humans that uh, Steyer interacted with. Mm. And Steyer gave him the option. Hey, you go bring people to me and I won't hurt you. And to save his own ass, that's exactly what he did. So I, I don't know. I, I don't... Hmm. I think it's interesting. I wonder if it's reading through it that way that Steyer says that always oh, a test of human gullibility. I wonder if Steyer yeah. offered it up. If Steyer, like, say if Viral and some other guy was captured, say yeah. if Roth was already captured and he saw what happened to Roth and Steyer's like, well, I'll let you go if you bring me more or else I'll do to you what I did to him. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's... Um, He's an interesting character, and like I kind of, the original script had him less of a dick. <laughs> yeah, because even though like you could say like oh like he, you know he was going to be tortured and whatever like that's true, but like his colleagues were being killed off one by one in terrible ways. You know, one of them was left out to starve, and died of starvation and dehydration. Another one was drowned. Yeah, Roth was burned. Like and that's just three. There was nine of them originally. That's just the three that we know of. What happened to the other three? Uh, so actually, it would have been the other two. Oh, the two. Yeah, Zink your man, your man fell off. Yeah, Zink falls off the cliff. Mm. Um, Jesus Christ, it's fucking. <sighs> if you think about it, this is actually a really fucking scary episode. It <laughs> really like, is. Con- and like, context, it's a scary. You know, like imagine going through the rocks and finding some guy hanging there after being left to starve and hearing someone report that, oh, three days ago, he stopped being able to do this. And now at six days, yeah. he's dead. And you're like, okay, shit. <laughs> yeah, fucking hell. Like Speaking of the, the horrible things, let's talk about Steyer. Speaking of Dr. Joseph Mengelspud. <laughs> um, so I, had a, I was thinking, right? We said that Lynx was a very intimidating villain. And that's because of his military skill paired with his scientific acumen. Yes. He's like, he's a fucking complete package. He's not just a meathead Mm. soldier. 
He's a fucking scientist as well, which is scary. Steyer is a whole level of other scary because he's a scientific, he's because of his voracious scientific curiosity. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, if you think about it, the way it's presented in the story, clearly the marshal was happy with Steyer's initial report. Mm. I was like, thank you for your initial report. We're good to go. But Steyer wanted to continue his experiments. And he Mm. was willing to hold off the invasion so he could torture five people. Yeah. Or and and like and I think I think that if he hadn't encountered Sarah Jane, he probably would have given the go ahead yeah. for the invasion. But it's like, ah, the female of the species. It's like he reminds me of there's a character from the Warhammer forty thousand universe called Fabius Bile who like experiments upon like his own legionnaires and all this type of stuff. He's mm-hmm. a fucking yeah, he is like the Dr. Frankenstein, Joseph Mengel of the whole thing. And he's a terrifying character. Steyer, as I said, yeah, he's terrifying because it's as close to glee as I suppose we can tell with Santaran mm. over like his, it, it's almost perverse. Yeah. What, the, the, the whole thing with the, the experiments. It's like, I'm really glad that we didn't like, we didn't see the drowning one or hear the description of the drowning mm. one or we didn't rot give more of a description but you can imagine like some of the other i can i can imagine that one of the other victims had to do with probably skinning yeah i i, I get that impression i imagine like because you have resistance to cutting is a thing yeah um mm. obviously roth was resistance to fire yeah um and then I presume someone was, was someone was suffocated. Yeah. So. So yeah, that was he was trying to see what Viril's chest uh, yeah. cage, how much pressure it could take. Yeah. And then and then he just actually fucking uppercuts him to death. He just yeah. like one punch and it just fucking cracks his jaw. I think you can actually hear the break. Yeah, but it kind of makes you wonder. Like, so the stuff that he's doing to Sarah Jane is about fear, and yeah. again, you can't help but wonder. Like, Santarans only have one gender they don't yeah. they don't have a two-part reproductive cycle as we find out in the time war mm-hmm. so yeah was he going to leave her die of fear or was he going to do other experiments i think he was probably going to test her fear just her entire fear levels i think he was going to probably throw every conceivable psychological thing yeah but i wonder if he would have stopped before death to try some other stuff on her because she is the only woman on this planet true do you know She's a very unique specimen to his experiments. I I don't know what other experiments he could do on her, though. Well, like, you know, from a scientific perspective, there are two sides of the human species. He's performed all of his experiments so far on males. Hmm. Will he get different results if he performs them on females? Well, see that that's but that's what I'm wondering is in the sense of like, is he would he do all the same experiments again just to her, or would there be something else that he might try differently? Mm. But as a, for me, like because he's so sadistic, I can imagine him not like exploring the realms of her fears. But not pushing her so hard that like she has a heart attack or something. I think he'd want to keep her alive. I don't know. That's just the sense I get from the fact that he's such a sadistic yeah. prick. Um, yeah, no, it is. 
in terms of like you know, we mentioned with links that like the sun like I said links was very cold and calculating is probably the best way to describe links like he thought everything mm. through whenever where Steyer is clearly sort of he likes it do you know he enjoys yeah. it and he wants to be able to do more of it which I think is a great way of taking the character we saw in links and taking it to the next level like you said and it's mm. One of the reasons why I like the Sun Tyrants as villains is that they're not just go out shooty shooty. Even though they're a warrior race, there's more to them than that. I was I was about to say like that they're not kind of like the Ice Warriors. Mm. They're not a uniform mind. Yeah, but they're also because... like not like the Cybermen who just go in shooty shooty or the Daleks just go in shooty shooty. There's more to them than that. Yeah, but that that's what I mean. Like like you have you have the scientific section. Mm. of them like so the military uh, scientific assessment or survey or whatever the fuck they're called you can you, you get the impression like that they're the real none of the other Santaran military infrastructure is very fond of them mm. you have to yeah, wait for them to finish all their shit first and they take too unnecessary amount of time to give mm. us the information like you know it's yeah like ugh. but even just even just on that like building on you know, again, building on the stuff from Lynx the last time. Like, here we find that, like, Suntarans get sent out in advance. They mm. perform experiments to find out how to best kill somebody. Yeah. Like, that in itself is... Ugh. You know? Like, do, you know who, do, you, do you know who he's starting to remind me of? Hmm. Uh, Count Rugen from Princess Bride. You've just lost one year of your life. Tell me, how do you feel? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, like you know, like when Sarah screams out for Roth, and she, he's like, "Why did you make that noise?" Yeah. What the fuck was that? Oh, why did you make that displeasurable noise? <laughs> um, oh, but yeah, God. like you know, Lynx and Star, you know, both performed brilliantly by Kevin Lindsay, and I love that it's the mm. same actor, but they're clearly different characters. Even though we're told they're a clone race, yeah. And if you squint, you can kind of just imagine they look identical. Yeah, he made them distinctive. Yeah, it's no different than Alan Benyon playing Islier and Azexir. Uh, Azexir, yeah, Azexir, yeah, or even to a certain degree Slar from uh, Seeds of Death. Mm. When the same actor comes back and plays different iterations of a very similar species, mm. but shows the depth in their characteristics and their mindsets, it's great and. It is sad to think that this is Kevin's last performance as Santaran, but we know that they're going to come back. Yeah, like well, this was at this point they didn't know, but obviously you and I yeah. do. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just it's a shame. It's a shame. Kevin did a great job. He did. He did. He really did. Ah. Oh. Oh. So here we are again, a mm. uh, bit shorter this time, but longer than anticipated, I think. Yeah. Uh, let me do the math. We're at a little over an hour, hour ten maybe. Mm. So maybe yeah. longer than we maybe would have anticipated it being. Yeah. We were like Jesus back back in the early days. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, this this would have been like forever. Yeah. This. <laughs> so. I think you went first last week. So I did, I so you can go first this yeah. week. All right. So, 
overall, this is a very nice little two-parter. Mm-hmm. And I'm liking the fact that in keeping with the the history of the show, it's another good two-parter. It's yes. not it's not just a throw it's not just a throwaway story. Even though you can tell like it's a it's a nice little kind of like I suppose like side quest to the arc in space type thing, or mm-hmm. it's not a coda, but like just a little side part. It's still interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's still good you, it, there's good character development in it. Get to see a recurring villain. Um it's we're we're after spending a bit of time talking about the, their culture again, actually to see a bit more of the differing mindsets within the Suntaran society, which is great. Um good performances all around. Mm. There's nothing I don't have anything really negative to say, but for me it just still lacked a bit of that oomph that Edge had. Mm. Or even I thought, you know, well like Rescue was introducing a new character to the show. Mm. So there was a lot more going on there. Um so I didn't have the the complete 100% factor for a full 5 out of 5. So I've given it a 4.5 out of 5. That's still really good though. Yeah. 4.5 is still because, because like I like this. I think like and even with the new discoveries that we've kind of had like this it's actually this episode is actually taken on a bit more of a sinister nature mm. than it has on its uh face value. Mm. Yeah, I think I think there's still just uh, the four out of five. I think it might four be just or by four point f- five. Sorry, four point five out of five. Yeah. Four point five. I think it might be virtue the fact of um, even though he's excellent in episode two, mm. Harry doesn't really do much in episode one. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, but like, see again, look, it's not negative because he does make up for it, but. Mm. Oh, yeah, no, but it's as I I think. Look, it's just a four point five out of five, which isn't to me. It's not a thing to fucking sneeze at. Well. No, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> we often went entire seasons by seeing for a score that high. One out of five, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or four, Jesus. Mm. So I really like this story, even though, like you said, at face value, not a lot really happens in it for our main cast. In the sense that they end pretty much the same as they began. Um, Unlike, for example, Edge of Destruction, where we saw the beginning of the personality shift for the Doctor. We saw the beginning of the beautiful friendship between the Doctor and Barbara. And then the rescue, we obviously had the introduction of Vicky. And a very different dynamic there. And with the Doctor dealing with the loss of Susan. And we also got to see like the Doctor being a bit more assertive because yeah. like I, I love that fight he has with Bennett. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more for our characters in terms of ongoing impact. And this might be me sort of you know, tipping my hands because I know what comes next. But like you can tell that at the end of the story, those characters were different to how they were at the beginning. In this story, yes, we see Harry being very you know determined and we see sarah going through a horrible ordeal but at the end they're pretty much the same as they were at the beginning um which i think is where this sort of has a bit of a difference from the other two stories that being said though it does have on further inspection and further discussion it is much darker than you maybe think it is and it certainly stacks up with those other two in terms of a two-part story that is dark as fuck. <laughs> Do you know? Um, 
The one thing that I think is the big thing for me in Santarin versus the other two is that while Santarin can stand on its own, it's not really one you can watch out of sequence if you've never seen the arc in space before. Because there are so mm. many references to Nerva that it, mm. it literally makes no sense. Um, the yeah. difference being Edge of Destruction, while yes, the continuation of that beginning trio of stories, you can watch it on its own. And you're like, well, he's an asshole, blah, 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 blah. You don't really need the run-up information. Like, mm. it sort of presents to you the character dynamics. And similarly with the rescue, it's like, oh, well, a character left. Okay, cool. Well, now we have a new character coming in. Whereas I think with Santarin, you have to have seen Ark at least once before. Yeah. For it to make really any sense. <laughs> because mm. otherwise, it's like this sort of, you know, this little, little shore leave earth side that goes a little bit awry. <laughs> yeah. That being said, though, like, there is a lot to love about this story. While we don't get to see a lot of Sarah and Harry together over two episodes, we do get to see them together on their own a bit. Because the last time we saw Sarah and Harry really on their own was in Robot for like the two seconds where she berated mm. him for getting captured, you know, which wasn't yeah. really great. We get to see here again a consideration and a caring between the two of them. Her going to all these efforts to try and get him out of the pit. Him losing his mind trying to get her out from behind the force field is great. We get to see how Harry's willing to get into the action, even though because of Tom he doesn't need to, but he was perfectly willing to get in. The reveal of Steyer and Sarah's reaction to it, I just love. And yeah. I have to think that when Russell T. Davies was doing Journey's End, that that's what was coming to his mind when Sarah sees Davros. Do you know, like that that has to have been in there somewhere. Russell's too big of a fan not to have thought of that in the yeah. back of his mind. Um, and we get one of the best things about this is we get to see everyone rescuing or at least attempting to rescue each other. You know, the yeah. doctor rescues Sarah, but Sarah had already rescued him, and Harry tries to rescue Sarah, and she tried to rescue him from the pit. And you know, there's this a lot of this sort of helping each other naturally in the story between our main cast. So for me, I think the points get docked just because it connects so heavily with the arc in space. Mm. Like I watch them separately, but that's because I've watched them both several times now. And I know who Vyra is, and I know what Nerva is, and I don't need to be reminded on what they are. But if you've never seen the arc before, this isn't really one that you can just pick up and watch out of order. No. And also... At the end, while our characters have gone on a crazy journey, their personalities end the same way they began. Yeah. And there's no change there. You know, the change that we saw in Edge, the change that we saw in The Rescue. We don't have that change in this one. So of the three of them, I think this one would kind of be lower, but yeah. still an excellent story. So for me, it was a 4.25. Still a really good story. Still definitely worthy of a four or higher, but 4.5 or 5, I was like, I don't know. Like, you can't really watch it by itself. And, you know, the characters, well, they all have some good moments. They don't really grow at all. Um, and they pretty much end the same way they began. You could, you could theoretically go from arc to next week and not watch this. I think you'd be missing out on a lot if you did that. 
I, I think you'd be missing out on a, on a bit of character development for Harry or not yeah. so much development, but exposure. unveiling and Unve- unveiling. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. So I think you, but you think is, it is at its core skippable in terms of the ongoing story, which sucks because it's skippable, but it can't be watched by itself, which is weird. It's, it's a weird juxtaposition for a story to be in where it's like, you can't just watch Santarin if you've never watched the one that came before it. But you could easily skip it and our characters continue as is. Or alternatively, you could listen to our review of Ark and then watch Santarin yourself. No, that's true. Or you could get the <laughs> audiobook. Or you could get the target novelization of the audiobook. Well, the audiobook of the target novelization or the target novelization yeah. itself. So, uh, a very wonderful person who probably will rename, should rename nameless. Should, should, uh, should yeah. the name nameless? Yeah. So, uh, Trish got me the uh, audiobook of uh, Arkham Space and by John Colshaw, and he is doing a fucking phenomenal job, and it is so good. Yeah, it is a fantastic um, telling of that story. But still, um, I think for this season, we are doing exceptionally well. We're midway through. Um, yeah. So, there's five stories this season. That was story number three. Uh, and we're currently both sitting at a 4.75 for this season. Because yeah. you gave Robot 4.75 and I gave it a 5. So that's where the 2.5 discrepancy mm-hmm. resolved itself. Next week, though, we have a story that a lot of people consider the best Doctor Who story ever. Mm-hmm. Or the best classic Doctor Who story ever. I think the DVD that I had, I gave it to you. I think the sticker on that said like the top, the number one most top-rated Doctor Who story ever. Yeah, I think it's... I did also buy that DVD like back in yeah, 2012. It's, so. <laughs> it's held the top spot with Caves of Androzani, which is the Peter Davison regeneration mm. story. But this is a... This is like a... This is a... A, um, a pinnacle moment within yeah. the show's history. It's definitely a landmark story, and that story is Genesis of the Daleks. Yes. So we'll be back next week with that one. Mm-hmm. Join us next week as Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford <laughs> and the other guy whose name I can never fucking remember. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>